Friends podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Singer. I'm a Christian writer and blogger living in the beautiful state of Alaska. I'm also a trauma survivor and a mental health advocate. I've been through some tough things in my life, and I'm sure you have too. Grace Moments is about helping you hold on to belief in your darkest hours, embrace hope by knowing your suffering is never wasted, and be inspired by the stories of others who have survived their own tragedy. Life, however difficult, can be a meaningful journey, and I'm here to walk it with you. So let's do this together. Something that has become a lost art in modern times is the concept of apprenticeship. Nowadays, it usually means working in a certain business or company and learning the ways of a certain career field. But a few hundred years back, it meant learning directly under the tutelage of a master craftsman. It meant developing a personal relationship with the expert, understanding his ways, comprehending his personality, and his wishes when it came to producing a certain item and developing a particular skill. These days, when so much is done digitally and machines do the work that used to be done almost exclusively by hand, it's harder to grasp the significance of working under the instruction of a specific master. Perhaps this is best understood using the example of a violin maker such as Antonio Stradivari. Long known for being arguably the best ever in the business, Stradivari grew up in 17th century Italy and likely began his apprenticeship working with a reputable violin maker at around the age of 13. He would have assuredly begun with the most menial of tasks, probably spending much time observing the more advanced employees and taking in all the ways of the trade. He would have received training from the master craftsman, gradually working his way up the experience chain until he began to be able to design and build his own instruments. This process would have taken around two to four years, indicating just how much patience and determination was required at the time to learn such a new skill. Even after beginning to create his own work, he would have probably remained for several more years in his master's shop and used his master's reputation as a launching point for his personal career. History has proven that Stradivari truly surpassed even his instructors in talent when it came to creating quality violins and other stringed instruments of the time, Although many of his works have been lost to history, a few hundred still survive and are highly regarded in the music world. And while they are a testament to the dedicated work and the talent of Antonio himself, they are also a nod to the quality of professional training he received from the master who taught him. A combination of teachableness on Stradivari's part, along with great instruction from his employer, brought some of the most respected and beloved violins ever created. During the mid-1660s, when Stradivari was making such beautiful works of musical art, it was a golden age for instrument making in Europe, and particularly in Italy, which was known for its amazing craftsmanship when it came to stringed instruments. This trade had been passed down through families and apprentices for a couple hundred years already, and continued into the late 18th century. Into the 19th century, however, as times changed and Apprenticeship died out thanks to war and other societal factors. These instruments became all the more rare and prized because the craft had mostly died out. In the 20th and now 21st century, there's been a revitalization of the handcrafted violin industry, with many seeking to learn and understand the secrets of skilled masters like Nicola Amati and Antonio Stradivari, knowing full well 
but much of their genius has been forever lost to history. The secrets lived on while future craftsmen were determined to learn their art, but once the craft faded out for a generation or two, that's all it took for the unique quality to be lost. I want us to picture for a moment, working in a shop like Stradivari's. Perhaps we would first be doing the simple things like sweeping the wooden shavings off the floor and observing the master and his assistants do their work. Little by little, we would be asked to try our hand at some aspect of the job, slowly gaining the trust of the master and earning ourselves more responsibility over time. Eventually, we would begin to create our own work, and the teacher would take a step back, allowing us to function with greater independence and confidence. Someday, we might become good enough to branch off and start our own venture, taking the skills we've learned and improving on them, putting our own touch on the product and developing our own brand. I think we often view the Christian life in this way. While it is true that we're all apprentices under Christ, learning His ways, studying His character, and trying to grasp more and more how to imitate Him and be like Him, I think we expect at some point to have that, okay, now you've gotten the hang of it moment. That arrival of sorts where He steps back and says, you've mastered this Christianity thing, and I can step back and trust you to go do it on your own. At least I know I've felt that way before. It can be incredibly frustrating when it seems as though we never leave the master's shop, but the truth is, while he may send us out as ambassadors for his work, we are still under his tutelage, carving his name into our work and letting the world see his brand on our lives and our stories. Somehow, though we know we are always under his observation and his guidance, we act as though we should reach a certain place in our journey with him where he perhaps is less needed and we can just be trusted to be responsible and get it right on our own. But this, friends, isn't the way God works. Once he brings us into relationship with him and we begin to become his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared before the dawning of time for us to do, we never ever step out from underneath his instruction. We are always learning, always growing always developing, grasping however slowly what it means to represent Him and to be His representatives to a fallen world. We are both the violin and the apprentice. Having been stamped with His image, we then convey that image through our hands, our feet, our voice, our heart, to the culture around us, giving the gift of Jesus wherever we go. In previous centuries, when faith played a more cultural role in the average person's life, there was a general consensus that mankind was created in the image of God, imago dei, as it's termed in Latin. This used to be something that guided even non-Christians when it came to a lot of personal viewpoints and decisions. As such, there was a greater respect for human dignity and even differing viewpoints as people still saw each other within the framework of God's creation. Now, as the world has become less and less shaped by Christian values, even those within the church have lost that sense of being image-bearers of the Almighty, that possessiveness of having been chosen and given the privilege through the gospel to rediscover one's original identity before the fall and learn the ways of the Master whom we serve. It's as if we expect to simply pass through the school of Christ and then graduate, failing to realize that such education truly is a lifelong endeavor. Earlier Christians used to understand and speak about this far more than we do now, and the modern church is feeling the effect of the absence of such teaching. Craig Lounsborough wisely observes, I am made in the image of God. Therefore, if I don't know God, 
I can't know me. Such knowledge can realistically only take place over a lifetime. I have to remain inside of him at all times, observing how he works and discovering what he expects and desires of me. I have to be with him and understand his heart. And the more I do that, the more I transform into his likeness and the better able I am to be his representative. One thing I've circled back around to time and again is the question of who am I building for? Am I doing what I'm doing in life with the goal of eventually getting good enough to set out on my own and brand my life with my achievements, my dreams, my goals? Or am I doing it with the sole intent of representing my creator and making him look great instead of myself? I don't think this question has greater meaning than when what you built in life comes crashing down. When the business you spent years building up goes under or changes ownership. When the career path you envisioned is no longer an option. When the marriage you had falls apart. When the child you raised turns their back on you and everything you raised them to be. When the health you once enjoyed that enabled you to achieve so much is now in decline and you are limited in what you can do. When the friendship you poured so much into fizzles out and that special person is no longer in your life. When death cuts short the time you thought you had with somebody and you now attend a funeral when days ago you were planning the future. When all that you stake so much on and put everything into disintegrates, you have to sit back and ask yourself why you did it. Who did you do it for? Was it for your own objectives and to make yourself look good? Or was it for the glory and honor of the Lord Jesus? Sometimes when situations like these happen, I think we grieve not just the circumstances themselves, but we also grieve the part of ourselves that we lost along with them. When what we've given so much toward and tried to build fails or collapses, we often mourn the breaking of something that signified us, something that bore our name, our soul, our identity. Like the violin maker, we lovingly and carefully invested ourselves into creating something of quality and value, and we perfected it to the best of our human capability. We had high hopes and dreams for that product of our investment, and then, as we watched the dream die, we felt like a part of us died too. While it is certainly crucial that we grieve all meaningful losses in our life, be they people, things, or dreams, it is important to identify and separate the grief of losing that object of importance and losing who we were in light of it. We will always grieve that lost innocence, that lost opportunity, that lost goal or aspiration, that lost health, that lost relationship, but we don't have to forever grieve the loss of ourselves because of it, especially if we understand who we are building for. See, I think it's particularly devastating when we've built and invested in such things, believing that they were our way of setting out on our own from the master's workshop, skills learned and mastered, ready to conquer our own hopes and dreams, when we've forgotten our place as his students under his guidance, when we've lost our perspective on where our gifts come from in the first place, when we've built things and left off his brand, his name, and carved our own in its place. I believe that we're destined for deeper pain and greater grief in light of our losses. When we remember our place as the apprentices and pupils of the master himself, I truly feel it's easier to place our losses in perspective when they occur. They still hurt deeply, and many questions come up of, could I have done something differently? Why did all that time and effort go to waste? How do I go on from here? But somehow, knowing that you are doing your best to create something worthy of the Master's blessing, 
sweetens such pain and offers hope of a fresh start. One of the most compelling things about the life of Christ is his constant remembrance of his duty to his Father. He knew exactly what his role was when it came to everything that he did during his earthly ministry. How many times in Scripture do we see him referring to the will of his Father and what his Father asked him to do versus what he wanted to do? Numerous New Testament passages reference him deferring to the authority and plan of his Father. I must be about my Father's business. All that the Father gives to me are mine. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. And for whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Jesus demonstrated the ultimate example of what it means to lay down your own ambitions for the sake of the Father's purposes and plans. To work joyfully, cheerfully, gladly under the guidance and will of your master, happy to be or do anything so that he may be magnified. What has distinguished previous generations of remarkable believers was their willingness to be anything or to be nothing provided that God was glorified, and we must be willing to do the same if we ever hope to join their honorable lot. God created us for this, writes John Piper, to live our lives in a way that makes him look more like the greatness and the beauty, and the infinite worth that he really is. This is what it means to be created in the image of God. Piper goes on to ask a sobering but truly important question. Do you feel loved by God because you believe he makes much of you, or because you believe he frees you and empowers you to enjoy making much of him? When you look at your personal life, are you growing and learning with the intention of someday leaving the master's workshop and stepping out on your own? Are you hoping that at some future time you'll have mastered this thing called faith and life and God somehow won't have to be as involved? Are you expecting to go on and do great things with what he's taught you, but expecting him to merely be along for the ride? Or are you content to fill whatever role he's assigned you in his workshop? Are you content and happily willing to remain under his tutelage, glad to elevate and promote his name, and humbled to be the bearer of his mark? Are you excited to do his work in his way on his timetable, so long as he is honored? Are you working toward one day hearing the words, Well done, good and faithful servant? In whatever we do in life, we're either carving our own names or carving his. We cannot make God any bigger than he is, but we can certainly make him look bigger in the eyes of the world as he is. God doesn't need us. He's perfectly capable of doing his work without us, Unlike Antonio Stradivari, who had to develop apprentices to help him grow his business, God's not in some state of want or lack where he's sitting up in heaven and thinking, if so-and-so doesn't show up for me today, the whole plan is ruined. His purposes continue regardless. His plans go forth unhindered. But he has graciously chosen to involve us in his work, to utilize the gifts and talents he has placed inside of us for the sake of promoting his glory and advancing his kingdom. All of us have been selected to work in the master's shop, to study under the master's guidance, not based on any talent or ability we brought to the table, but solely based on his generous offer. Therefore, the pupils and apprentices of God have no place for boasting. They have no name to bring to the work in the first place, and they have been given his name as their new identity. 
to think that there could ever come a time when they could set off on their own without his assistance and oversight is, in a word, utterly prideful. Founding father Benjamin Franklin sought to remind his fellow politicians of this truth back in the summer of 1787 while they were seeking to draft what would become the most important document in American history, the U.S. Constitution. They had been at it for over a month, gathering in Philadelphia from all over the 13 states, discussing and arguing over various forms of governance, deeply divided over some key issues regarding representation of the people in this new congressional setting they were attempting to form. Franklin finally spoke up one day and admonished them all for failing to call upon the wisdom of the one who had so faithfully guided them through their recent struggle for independence. With men like James Madison, George Washington, George Mason, and many others in the room, he uttered perhaps one of the most important speeches in our nation's history. Mr. President, he began, the small progress we have made after four or five weeks closed attendance and continual reasonings with each other are different sentiments on almost every issue, several of the last producing as many nays and a's is, methinks, a melancholy proof of the imperfection of human understanding. We indeed seem to feel our own want of political wisdom since we have been running about in search of it. We have gone back to ancient history for models of government, and examine the different forms of those republics which, having been formed with the seeds of their own dissolution, now no longer exist. And we have viewed modern states all around Europe, but find none of their constitutions suitable to our circumstances. He continued, In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth, as scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of applying to the Father of Lights to illumine our understandings. In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of our superintending providence in our favor. To that kind providence we now owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. Franklin concluded his speech with a motion that they pause for prayer, and that prayer begin each morning before they proceeded with their business, and that a member of the clergy be requested to do this honor. It is for this reason that today we have a U.S. Senate and U.S. House chaplain and that members of Congress can still gather for prayer every morning when in session. Whether building nations and careers, relationships or dreams, or when simply building a life, it is impossible that anything of lasting worth or value can be erected without the oversight and guidance of the one under whom all things operate. This truly is our Father's world and we are all merely partakers of his bounty and beneficiaries 
of his wisdom and grace. By him we were created, and for his pleasure we exist. And all our actions we perform in this life center around the sole purpose of glorifying and enjoying God, of making him great. I want to close today by simply asking you to picture yourself and all that you've dreamed of, hope for, or strive towards, and to picture God standing over your shoulders, hands on your hands guiding your work. I want you to see him showing you how it's all supposed to be done, teaching you about yourself and about him as you learn, revealing his heart to you as you begin to understand what you are made for and what he wants to do in your life. Picture yourself taking pleasure in doing his work, however menial your role, and feel the joy of watching his name be stamped on the things you achieve in your life. This life isn't about you, friend. It's not about me either. It's all about the master for whom we work, the father whom we apprentice with. We're all novices at this journey, and there will be many times when we'll have to swallow our desire to see our own name engraved in the place that only belongs to God. But we have a patient, loving teacher who continues to remind us that our purpose is to reflect and represent Him. And whatever you set your hand to, ask yourself who and what you're building for. Depending on your answer, it could save you a world of disappointment. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked what you heard on today's episode, please subscribe to this podcast as well as leave a review. If you want to read additional content, please visit and subscribe to my blog at www.graceopens.blogspot.com. You can also connect with me on social media via Twitter at OpenToGrace2015, Instagram and Parlor at OpenToGraceAlaska, and on MeWe under my name, Katherine Singer. I'll see you in the next episode, and remember, Grace will always meet you where you are. Thank you.